Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. New Zealand is a country somewhat like Australia, but different. And in recent times, there's been a tendency for many of us to look across the Tasman in admiration of what appears to be an inclusive and pragmatic way of doing politics that uh, stands in stark contrast to the way things tend to go down here. But as outlined by Laura Tingle in the new quarterly essay, there's much Australia can learn by looking beyond Jacinda Ardern's leadership to where the two nations have diverged on key issues throughout history. On matters spanning economics, Indigenous rights, foreign affairs and governance, there are more than a few sliding doors moments that can prompt a reimagining for how Australia might do things differently. Laura Tingle is a journalist and chief politics correspondent for the ABC's 7.30. Her essay is entitled The High Road, What Australia Can Learn from New Zealand. And to chat all about it, she joins us on the line. Laura, thanks so much for spending some time with us today on Triple R. My pleasure. Um, nice to talk to you both, Carly and Dylan. And so I guess a quarterly essay coming out at this point in 2020 could focus on any number of, you know, very important and worthy issues. Why focus your analysis on Australia and New Zealand's kind of shared but also different histories? Sorry, you just broke up at a crucial moment of your question. Um, <laughs> why, why, why New Zealand and why now, Laura? Oh, why? oh yeah, well, look, um, uh, happenstance is the answer to that. Uh, I actually started thinking about this essay last year, long before COVID came along, and it was because of Brexit, actually, because uh, the, 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 the sort of time frame of the essay is really about the time uh, from when uh, Great Britain decided it was going to join the common market, and as a result, Australia and New Zealand lost their sort of preferential trading position uh, with the United Kingdom and also that sort of sense of belonging somewhere else. Uh, and, uh, and we've got this full circle now where Brexit's happened and uh, the, um, the Brits decided to get out, out of what was, uh, you know, referred to as the common market in those days, but is now the European Union. And so there was a, a, sort, of a, a sort of a full circle uh, sort of element uh, to the essay, which made me think about, OK, this, this, uh, a lot of other stuff was happening that was really important in the last half of the second, uh, the last half of the last century. But uh, this changed the way we thought about ourselves and it forced us to go out and uh, forge new paths in foreign policy, in economics, uh, in social policy, in all sorts of ways. And I thought it made it a really interesting little time capsule to look at two countries in transition, which more or less covered the period of my uh, journalistic career as well. Yeah, I love that um, that full circle element to this essay, and it, I mean it makes it really you know neat for storytelling as well. But I, I guess it'd be interesting to talk about um, how that decision uh, back in the 1970s for the UK to join that um, EU common market really did cast both Australia and New Zealand a bit astray. I mean, they were a huge trading partner at that time. And, and I guess both Australia and New Zealand have opened economies since then and also started to trade very much with China. Can you sort of talk about what's common about the journey that we took after that major trading partner mm. decided to, to forge a different bond with a different area and, and the different paths that Australia and New Zealand took? 
Sure. Well, um, as you say, economically, it, it forced us to really change. I mean, we we were both very uh, heavily agricultural economies uh, as, as traders at that stage. I mean, obviously, there was already mining in Australia, but we, we, we basically uh, did very well out of our agricultural trade with the UK at the time uh, that... Uh, Britain joined the common market. Um, and, of course, there was also the social element. It wasn't just that we were big traders. We were we regarded ourselves as, as being sort of special, as having a sort of special relationship with Britain. The first place that anybody went when you left school was London. Um, that might have been a bit of a leftover of the swinging 60s, a bit before my time. But, uh, but, but so there was a social element to it as well. So suddenly both countries had to say, well, what, what is our place in the world? Uh, and how, how are we going to make a living? So uh, there were two things uh, politically that happened which became the sort of the uh, forces for change, and, and it was changes of government. Uh, uh, Bob Hawke was elected in 1983. David Longy was elected in 1984. Both governments came in and were suddenly told, actually, the economy is pretty terrible. You're going to have to make these really radical decisions to, uh, to deal with that. Uh, we eventually floated the Australian dollar, uh, as New Zealand did um, about 12 months later when it uh, changed government, it had this sort of immediate sense of economic crisis around it uh, in both countries for, uh, for the same reason. Uh, but the difference was that essentially Labor in Australia came in, faced this uh, sort of sense of crisis for the first time, and it also faced a lot of suspicion from the business community because uh, business still had a very sort of poor view of uh, the history of the, the Whitlam government in terms of economic management. So Labor in Australia was desperately trying through the first four or five years, particularly of its time in government, to show that it was a responsible economic manager, uh, which, uh, but also it had the accord with the trade unions, which meant that it, and, and Bob Hawke had the sort of idea of reconciliation and consensus so that there was broad discussion about where the nation was heading. In New Zealand, uh, there was a much more uh, radical free market uh, agenda which had been worked up by the New Zealand Labor uh, Finance Minister, the equivalent of the Treasurer, in conjunction with, the, with people in the Reserve Bank there and the Treasury, which was for a much, much more radical uh, uh, market reform than when we were anticipating in Australia. And it was, a, it was, a, it was a, an agenda he brought into government, whereas Labor had to sort of basically muddle through, abandon some of the things it had been planning to do here uh, and, and just react to the circumstance. Now, what happened was that New Zealand really radically and very quickly changed... Uh, changed its policies it had, and it also started from a position where it was a much more heavily subsidised economy so there was a lot more shock when it did when it did move but where Labor was trying to do things in a way that people would accept because it wanted to become the natural party of government and stay in office for a long time Roger Douglas had this view that he'd only really get one term to get everything done and he raced ahead with it and that came at a huge social um, cost and at the cost of huge social disruption across the country uh, with small towns decimated as um, government instrumentalities uh, uh, cast off workers, as uh, farmers lost massive subsidies which had kept them afloat. Uh, it, was a, it was a massive shock to the system.
Uh, one of the, the sort of key differences in, in Australia and New Zealand that's, um, that's often been spoken about is how both countries have dealt with their colonial history. And, of course, in New Zealand, there's the Treaty of Waitangi, which was um, instituted as the, the Treaty of Waitangi Act um, in 1975. And, of course, um, in Australia, we still don't have sort of a, a formalised treaty or treaties with, um, with First Nations peoples in this country. And you write about how there's been much more readiness to incorporate uh, kind of Maori culture and, and language and, and so on into, you know, mainstream institutions. And of course, there are some seats set aside for um, Maori electorate uh, representatives. How do you account for the different ways that Australia and New Zealand have approached this issue? Um, I guess, given that they, you know, at one point um, very much could have been part of the one country. Well, um, as you say, uh, the, the sort of the founding document of New Zealand is really the Treaty of Waitangi made between some of the colonists and uh, Maori chiefs in 1840. But uh, and whereas we ha- we were established on the basis of the idea of terra nullius, not only when we first arrived, white people first arrived in 1788, but also. Uh, you know, it's implicit in in the constitution uh, that uh, that terra nullius was was that was the going thing. Now, that would that would make you think that um, that gave Maori an advantage over uh, Indigenous people in Australia. But in fact, uh, for long periods of time, the courts actually uh, threw out and dismissed the Treaty of Waitangi as uh, something that had been made, an agreement made with savages, which ha- had no standing. Even when it did have standing, it was basically largely ignored. Uh, the Maori were ripped off. So we get to we fast forward to. Um, 1990, roughly, uh, and then the decade of the 90s in Australia, we were uh, confronted by a challenge to the idea of terra nullius with uh, the Marbo and Wick decisions. And in New Zealand, as you said, um, there was a Treaty of Waitangi Act that had started in 1975, but really gained momentum uh, on a bipartisan level in the uh, 1990s when uh, claims for breaches of the treaty were started started to be made, not just uh, uh, current breaches, but historic breaches. And it became a a matter of pride to both sides of government that they would make these settlements with the various iwi or tribes of New Zealand um, to recognise uh, and recompense in some way for what, what, what had been lost. Everybody knows that in no way do the settlements reflect the true monetary value of what's been lost. But part of it was about... Um, it was about uh, sort of just the fact that it was being acknowledged at all. It's given Maori uh, a, a really strong economic base from which to uh, sort of improve their circumstances. And it also involved these other elements of truth-telling, reconciliation, documenting what the history of these, uh, you know, often shameful episodes was. So that kept going despite a lot of resistance, which both sides of uh, politics uh, acknowledge from uh, from the general public who thought that it was a really bad idea. Uh, and it's uh, led, as you say, to Maori uh, culture being really central to, uh, to New Zealand's own identity. Now, people will say to you, well, it's easy to make uh, Maori an official language of New Zealand because it's just one language where, of course, we've got you know, hundreds of Indigenous languages in Australia. I think that misses the point, though, that there has been a, a healing and a recognition 
involved in um, in dealing with New Zealand's own history uh, in the process that they've uh, that they've gone through. Whereas what happened with us was uh, in 1996, John Howard was elected. Uh, you might remember or, or not that um, one of his election slogans was "For all of us." Mm. There was this implicit message that uh, Indigenous people were part of these sort of elites who were, who got special treatment from the government, and uh, essentially it was the beginning of a marginalisation of Indigenous issues as as something that was something that was important to be dealt with, and uh, and we we. You know, 20 years later, we're still at this position where uh, questions about a treaty, about the other aspects of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, and certainly a voice, um, an Indigenous voice, just remain completely polarising issues uh, which are not discussed in any serious fashion in most, uh, in most forums. Yeah, and I mean, Dylan um, mentioned at the outset about sliding doors moments, and I wonder, I mean, we... I suppose there might have been a sliding door moment when we could have not entered the culture wars here in Australia. Did New Zealand avoid avoid the culture wars, um, did you find, Laura, when, when doing that comparison of really big policy areas and, and cultural areas as you compared the two countries? I, I think it, they have avoided the culture wars as we now know them. I think you, you can't... Excuse me, you can't escape the fact that the fact that Rupert Mur- Murdoch and his uh, empire are not in New Zealand in a substantive way or, and haven't been. Um, I mean, I think that's a very important issue. Yes, they're there through Sky now, uh, but they're not in newspapers anymore. And you have to look at that broader debate about who, who, who is out there discussing stuff beyond politicians. And, you know, so many of our debates now become this sort of fodder for this sort of often artificial uh, or fake uh, left-right divide. You know, everybody's a leftist or, you know, or, 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 or a neocon and, you know, no, no discussion about serious issues will actually be entered into. Um, I think that that's helped New Zealand, as has their push to um, the so-called MMP system, which is the system mm. of parliament which works, say, in the ACT, but also in Germany, which see, tends to see a coalition of parties, bigger parties and minor parties, have to form and negotiate what they're going to do in government before they can form a government. And that that requires a civility across, uh, across the political divide that you don't really see in Australia anymore. So do you think, Laura, that there is something about the way that sort of governance happens in New Zealand that, that allows um, sort of the government of the day to take on, you know, sometimes these sort of more ambitious or, or policies that, that might have been brokered through sort of genuine consultation that is, is you know, often um, possible uh, in Australia where we have quite a sort of adversarial, you know, two-party system? Uh, well, I think there are a couple of things. I mean, one of the arguments uh, in, in the olden days was that uh, when people would look across the Tasman and, uh, who were free market advocates and look at what Roger Douglas was doing, they'd say, look, why can't we do what New Zealand's doing? Oh, it's because of the Senate. They don't have a Senate, so, you know, they've only got one chamber of parliament. New Zealand moved from a system where uh, the executive government had really immense power, and that that sort of worked in both directions, of course. You know, it led to these huge subsidies in the first place and then the radical removal of them. Um, now, New Zealand also doesn't have states. Now, in some ways, you could say, well, that's a really good thing uh, because it sort of also removes the arguments about what you're going to do. It remo- removes the clutter. But if we think about the way Australia and New Zealand have dealt with the pandemic, in some ways it's been, uh, you know, 
it's helped New Zealand that uh, at a time of crisis, the Prime Minister can step in despite the fact that uh, until the election last month, Jacinda Ardern didn't have a majority in her own right. She was able to say, right, leadership is required. This is what we're going to do. This is what's going to happen and, and, and just get on with it. But in some ways, the really important thing, I think, for Australia uh, when we were dealing with the pandemic, was that there were the states because it was New Zealand. Sorry, New Zealand. It was it was New South Wales and Victoria. Dan Andrews and uh, Gladys Berejiklian, who really pushed Scott Morrison for the lockdown and for the sorts of policies that we ended up getting to to deal with the pandemic because he was very reluctant to close down the economy. And you might remember that whole sort of bizarre period about the time the Formula One race was supposed mm. to be on in Melbourne where he kept on saying, well, we're going to start limiting big gatherings, but only from Monday because I want to go to the footy on yeah. Friday night. How do <laughs> We don't forget these things, do we, Laura? And I actually wondered, I mean, you don't go into this in, in the essay, uh, but I, I wondered around size of population because Melbourne, you know, is similar size to the population of New Zealand and we, like New Zealand, had this amazing compliance with regards to lockdown and, and really working together, you know, best we could to achieve what we have achieved here and also there. Is there something in the scale that means that we can have the sort of, uh, you know, a bit more compassion in, in politics and, and the kind of ruling in the public, oh, ruling, governing in the public interest in the way that we've seen with Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, but also... Um, in a different way, Dan Andrews here in Victoria? Uh, it might be to do with scale, Carlia, but I think um, also, uh, once again, um, you, you saw the, the sort of uh, the commonality of purpose that emerged in, in Victoria about this. Once, once people were, were told, look, this is what you've got to do, everybody sort of really got down and did it. And, you know, you could see the support that Dan Andrews got um, at, you know, if, if there was any sort of suggestion that you were in any way critical of Dan Andrews, you know, the the, uh, the wrath would all descend upon you. Um, and in the same way, everybody got down and did it in New Zealand, and they did it early. And I mean, their lockdown was really, really difficult. Their their lock their first lockdown was possibly tougher than the the later Victorian lockdown. Um, you know, you couldn't. You couldn't go out for a, a, a takeaway coffee to, to bring home or, or anything. Everything was closed except supermarkets and essential services, and everybody had to stay at home. And I think the fact that, one, it was so tough that everyone was doing it and that, most importantly, it worked, uh, really did do a lot to boost confidence in the system, whereas, of course, we've had these you know, various sort of breakouts, whether it's the Ruby Princess or the breakout in quarantine in Victoria, uh, most recently South Australia, which tend to undermine the confidence of the public in whether our leaders uh, you know, really know what they're doing or not. One other issue that you um, you touch on in the essay is how Australia and New Zealand have sort of negotiated their place in the world and, and their foreign policy um, objectives and, and how they've kind of positioned themselves over time. And you note mm. that New Zealand did not join the war in Iraq and, and also, um, you know, many people would, would remember this of a certain era, um, France bombing the Greenpeace vessel Rainbow Warrior in 1985, which kind of in a way emboldened New Zealand's um, kind of approach at being sort of an armed length from the United States government and its sort of anti-nuclear stance as well. How do you see New Zealand sort of managing particularly its relationship with China and how does that differ to what we're seeing with Australia kind of at the you know, current point in time where there's a significant trade stash around barley and, and wine and that sort of thing? Uh, 
Uh, yeah, well, it's, 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 there's a lot to unpack in all of that. Uh, yes, um, New Zealand sort of became famous for being the sort of assertive minnow. It, it sort of uh, refused to take uh, American ships unless they could be uh, declared nuclear-free, powered or, or armed, um, was thrown out of the ANZUS alliance with Australia and, and the US, um, forged away for itself in the world by being uh, the great multilateralist, um, tried to make itself useful for, through multinational peacekeeping efforts, uh, through its uh, support of international organisations. The relationship with the US thawed uh, after 9-11 when they sent trips to Afghanistan, but as you said, wouldn't go as far as the coalition of the willing in Iraq. Um, so gradually uh, that relationship has sort of become a bit more normalised, but it's still prides itself on its independence. Now, it's also a member of what's called the Five Eyes, which is the intelligence network, which also includes Australia. And that's a pretty crucial relationship. But uh, under John Key, who is the national prime minister, the equivalent of the Liberal National Party in Australia, um, they went absolutely hell for leather to uh, build up the trade relationship with with uh, China um, through the first uh, decade of this century. Um, had a completely trade-focused view of China to the alarm eventually of uh, the other Five Eyes partners, including Australia, that that, uh, that, that New Zealand was not sort of really uh, understanding the strategic issues raised by China uh, with its, its rise to power. It's gradually started to shift its position there, but I think um, it's now feeling pretty exposed. It, it has its big export to China is essentially uh, dairy, particularly uh, milk powder, um, and it's it's pretty exposed. And uh, China analysts in New Zealand say that China sees it as the model of what it would like other countries in the region to to be. It's got a Belt and Road Initiative agreement with uh, China, as does Victoria. Uh, China sees it as interesting as, as a small country. It can peel off the Five Eyes group. Uh, it's, uh, New Zealand's interest in the Pacific uh, also make it valuable for China, as do, do its interest in Antarctica. So it's, it's going to be a very tricky and interesting way forward for New Zealand with China, because it's going to be under immense pressure from China to, uh, to continue to behave itself, if you like, uh, and uh, it's and it's vulnerable because of its trade exposure to um, to China, which is I think much greater than ours. And I guess that sets up the next chapter. And I wonder, um, Laura, I mean, just finally, do you think we will pay more attention to New Zealand? I, I guess you make a case in this essay that we should and and look beyond, um, you know, Jacinda Ardern, who many people wish was a leader here in Australia or we had someone like her anyway. But I wonder um, what you see going into the future. Will we pay more attention to each other, do you think, across the Tasman? Well, I think we should. I mean, we've seen um, the, the Prime Minister go to Japan in recent weeks and suddenly everybody's suddenly focusing on the fact that, you know, Japan's the other really big ally in the region. If we're trying to sort of just you know, broaden our strategic relationships with people, we're also broadening them into Southeast Asia and India. But I think we also need to look east to New Zealand. Um, the, the, the sort of strategic analysts in the government tend to overlook or be a bit dismissive of New Zealand because they say it doesn't spend as much on defence as we do because it basically is sort of being a free rider on our defence spending. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't look to New Zealand and what it's doing on a range of issues and saying, well, we, there are friends of ours in the Pacific and the closest one and the one that's most similar to us is the one we know least about 
and we can both learn from each other about the way we govern and about the way we proceed from here. Yeah, well, it's an enlightening essay. Congratulations, and um, thanks so much for having a, a chat with us today on Triple R. Thanks for your interest. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Laura Tingle there, journalist and chief politics correspondent for the ABC 730 and also the author of the brand new quarterly essay, which is out through Black Ink. It's called The High Road, What Australia Can Learn from New Zealand, and it's available from today. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. The Victorian government's big spending budget was handed down last week. Uh, Infrastructure received billions, including community and social housing, public transport with suburban rail loop, Geelong fast rail, new trams, zero emissions buses, all funded. Um, More information and a route plan was provided for Melbourne Airport Rail too, with uh, 2029, the date when pretty much everyone can get to the airport with one interchange. So how will these things and other announcements shape the city? And maybe more importantly, if we build it, will they come? Um, I guess that is more of a question with regards to public transport, which is still pretty marginal at the moment with regards to who's using it. Associate Professor Dave Nichols is Senior Lecturer in Urban Planning at the University of Melbourne. And um, I guess you were kind of riveted watching it on the telly, Dave, the... uh the of course I was. Last week, of course I was. Kelly. I bought a new, I bought a new television, just to uh, just to watch it in like huge, like wall size. I wanted to see it really big. I'm sort of amazed you could buy like one. I, I thought they were out of stock. You know, everyone was doing that. I, I know people. <laughs> You're going to take the tally back to the shop now that you've um you've you've already you know used it for its purpose. That's right. Yes, I am. Absolutely. Oh, I was going to say right, that. Dylan, yeah. That says more about you, Dylan. <laughs> anyway, but let's get serious. Um, there was lots of funding for, for transport and also freight rail on the Murray-Darling. Um, welcome spend, Dave. Well, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, don't, I, I think it's really, really, really interesting to see, you know, this is, this is you know, I'm not, I'm not here to, you know, kiss anyone in the state government's ass particularly, but it's, it is really interesting to see how, what a progressive government does in, in Australia in 2020, and, and it really shows up the other state governments by and large for their um, lack of a, a progressive agenda. You know, a, a, big, a big picture, a long view, those kinds of things that I think are, um, are missing and have been missing for a long time you know, over the last few decades in this country. And, I mean, this state government has prided itself on, you know, big sort of infrastructure projects and, and level crossing removals and that sort of thing. But to what extent do you think that the pandemic has really sort of fast-tracked some of these projects and given, I guess, extra impetus to get things done to help kind of spurn an, an economic recovery? Yeah, exactly, Dylan. That's, and, and that's a big part of it. It's been um, who... Uh, I don't think I'm the first person to say this, but whoever would have thought that this is this is how 2020 would end up? So we've had a, we've had a big um, you know a big reset, a big rethink time. Um, there's all those things that you know people are saying that you know suddenly when when governments have to get into gear, and this this includes the federal government and the state government, um, state governments, you know they can actually fix problems that looked like they were wicked problems that were never going to go away. I'm thinking, of course, of things like homelessness. Um, well, fix them temporarily, I suppose. I, I don't know um, whether that's going to be forever. But um, the so there's there's those kinds of things that you know when when government is called for and when government is not being um, you know 
criticised and prodded and, and, and poked and, and worried at, it, and, you know, people turn to it as Australians are wont to do in times of crisis and say, you know, oh, God, we need help. Um, a government can turn around and, and you know, a good government can turn around and make things happen. The, um, so there's... So, Yes, exactly. As you say, all of that. It's been a the, the pandemic has has really um, totally changed the direction of well. Uh, I guess you know maybe this time next year we'll all be back to you know forgetting there even was a 2020. But um, at, at present, indications has really changed the way that people see uh, you know you know government's role. Yeah, and I wonder how the kind of spending that we're going to, all the kinds of projects that have been funded now through this budget, um, I mentioned the suburban rail loop, the airport rail, Geelong fast rail, there's upgrades around Dandenong as well to improve speeds on on the rail there. Um, you know, I assume this will help make it easier to commute, but also will it change, do you think, the experience of living in the suburbs of Melbourne? Because this sort of radial idea, rather than everything coming into the city, that we might have a bit more ability to interchange uh, a bit further out than than having to come all the way into the CBD. You know, Melbourne has has had the reputation for 150 years of being an octopus um, and and there's that that kind of, when, when, and, and I think it still is ridiculed, but Probably 15 years ago, the, the state government brought in the smart bus system, um, which is, you know, from major, major hub to major hub, um, quite long, you know, it takes four hours to, to traverse from one end to the other of those smart bus routes. But, you know, the point is not to traverse from one end to the other. The point is to not have to go into the city and out again. And um, I think it's, it's a difficult uh, shift for people to... Uh, to 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 think, you know, to think differently about getting from place to place by public transport. In fact, possibly even, you know, by by other means. We we are all sort of, you know, on our um, we go to we go to places the way we know how to go to them, and you know, it, it's difficult to to force us to think in other ways beyond the familiar. Um, in that regard, and many others. But yeah, so um, hopefully. Um, once again, um, sorry to mention the H word, but history has shown us that Melbournians are actually quite resistant to those, you know, not just the smart bus, but long before, um, you know, rail that, that goes from, you know, that, that avoids the city. But um, who knows, maybe, um, maybe the time has come. And, you know, Melbourne is it's really too big. And I think we've seen just in the last months when uh, traffic has come back onto the roads and, and all of that, you know, traffic is back at more or less the same level it was, let's say, this time last year, um, we're, we're reliving that nightmare and we're realising that, you know, well, most of us probably already realised that the CBD was not the be-all and end-all of Melbourne anything, um, Melbourne retail or Melbourne work or all of those kinds of things, but just that... Um, you know, there has to be a, a change. Oddly enough, the sort of change that people in Sydney have have had a, a very different conception of their city because their CBD is right on the edge of the of the of the city. You know, of the conurbation. So, you know, there there have been people in Sydney for 100 years who have not really ventured into the centre of the city much. But Melbourne Melbourne is you know very different in that sense. Although our you know our CBD is still. Our city is still lopsided and our CBD is um, sort of not in the centre, but uh, still we're more prone to, to think in those terms. Like I said, an octopus 
And so how do you see these announcements from the state government playing into the kind of connectivity between um, larger sort of regional centres like Geelong and, um, you know, places like Bendigo and, and there's, you know, I, I understand changes to sort of Shepparton and Warrnambool sort of train routes as well. Do you think there's much in there to allow greater connection between uh, Melbourne and, and these types of places? Um, I, I seriously hope that there's nobody... You know, maybe people in other parts of the world who are thinking about um, moving to, to Melbourne who look at the, the state government's sort of um, map of, you know, new projects where Warrnambool looks uh, closer to Melbourne than, you know, Camberwell does. Um, so, you know, pl- some places, you know, they're not, they're not a realistic commute um, in, in any sense. And that, that worries me, particularly because I know, and I think we probably all do, some of the listeners will be in this category. People who live in those regional centres are largely dependent on rail, and that is, you know, that's not a great way to be because, you know, things can go wrong, um, and and also because, uh, as the Public Transport Users Association is is saying very justifiably, um, it's all it's great to to announce these new build projects, but. When it comes down to it, what's needed is, you know, services, and uh, it's all very well to encourage people, uh, either indirectly or directly, to to go and live in regional centres, um, with the option possibly of commuting into the city, you know, maybe for work. Um, I guess the option also of having, you know, you're not leaving Melbourne, good, you know, forever, uh, in in the sense that it's accessible um, for events or, or whatever or, or or visiting friends or whatever, um, and yet the um, you know to, to be dependent on that um, on limited services and you know, crowded services is not not at all ideal. Yeah, so I guess there. yeah, I guess um, limited and crowded sort of go together, don't they? Associate Professor Dave Nichols is with us, and we're talking about the infrastructure spend in the Victorian budget, which was announced last week. I mean, some of the the spend was. Can't, you know, we knew about it beforehand, but the the big kind of plans were released last week by the treasurer, and uh, and I would like to um, speak a little bit about the housing spend that we heard about, um, Dave. We did speak a little about the you know experience of public housing residents last week on the program, but with regards to um, you know five point three billion being spent on housing, uh, is that? I mean, that's the biggest spend we've seen for G a a really long time. I mean, I. What, what 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 do you think will come from that? Um, yeah, it seems to be a. I mean, there's a little, there's a little bit of spin there, as um, as has recently been um, said by some um, uh, RMIT academics and one from one of my colleagues at Melbourne in the Age. There's a little bit of uh, spin there because um, there's that that ties into a a renewal program that was already in existence. So, for instance, when I'm in Parkville, there's two blocks away, there's a... Uh, old, it was quite delightful in some ways. I, I didn't live there, but it looked delightful. Um, North Melbourne housing estate that has just been completely raised. So, uh, you know, and that's the kind of place where new um, this new public housing is going to be built. So a lot of it is going to be on uh, land that already exists, and it's also... You know, there's still in this country, sorry, well, in this city and in this country, a huge um, stigma surrounding public housing, and you know, uh, homeowners often don't want to live near public housing. Well, 
in this case, there's no. It's not. It's not a case of public housing being inserted into um, somewhere where it hasn't been before. So you know. Um, so there's that that kind of aspect to it. Um, you know, whereas social housing is often a, it's a, a different kettle of fish. But let's not go there. Um, so uh, I think it's. Uh, look, I think it's potentially great. There's an incredibly huge waiting list for, um, for for people who deserve to go into public housing, who you know um, should should get it and should get it in uh, accessible places like North Melbourne. Um, and the uh, you know the, the state government, yes, long, long delayed. You know, the state governments of the last few decades have increasingly stepped away from public housing. Um, it was a, a disgrace that it was allowed to happen. That you know, that those governments weren't taking proper responsibility, were abnegating responsibility, devolving responsibility onto NGOs, which you know often have done really good work, but you know it's not necessarily their you know shouldn't be their, shouldn't be in their uh, in their hands necessarily uh, you know to such a great degree. Uh, I think that. Uh, you know, these places probably going to be... It's, 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 I think it's going in a really good direction. I, I haven't seen any plans for any actual buildings, so I only said they're probably going to be really good, but I have no idea. Um, but I, I certainly think that it's a positive. Yeah. Well, we've spoken quite a bit before on the show in, in sort of our discussions about how long-term kind of, you know, urban planning projects have been hampered by the kind of short-termism of, of political cycles and, um, you know, pressures around sort of budgets and that sort of thing. But we've seen here the state allocated, you know, a, a huge amount of money towards this kind of recovery effort that includes a bunch of projects that we've kind of spoken about. Do you, do you imagine that that can sort of be continued and will stand the test of time and won't become um, embroiled in these sort of, you know, tit-for-tat sorts of arguments that tend to hamper these types of long-term projects? Yeah, uh, and I'm just going to be really uh, interested to see how this plays out uh, going forward. And I've, I've been thinking, I've actually been reading um, Tom, Tom Uren's um, memoir of his time as a federal parliamentarian, and I'm just getting up to the bit where, you know, the Whitlam government is coming in and... Now, Whitlam really involves, and that's federal government, of course, federal Labor, um, really involving themselves in big, big projects and, you know, trying to cater to... There's actually a, a little bit where somebody says... Uh, I, think, I think times have changed, but somebody says something like, well, we're going to have to put some money into the arts and stuff as well to, to keep the middle classes happy. Um, I don't think that's necessarily... Well, who knows? But, you know, necessarily thinking now. But, I, you know, I noticed that the... The state government, of course, is is um, talking about a, a new uh, national gallery. You know, um, what's it called? Contemporary is it? National gallery, contemporary. Um, so there's there's that kind of thing um, happening as well. Um, so now now I'm rambling. I'm getting off track. The the yeah. In the long term, I re, I'm, it's going to be fascinating to see. I think that you know what needs needs to happen right now is that money needs to be sort of. I guess, uh, for want of a better term, pumped into the economy and you know, getting people uh, employed and getting things happening and people can see things happening um, and voters can say, well, you know, the, the Labor government, you know, did all right in, in bringing us back from the, the brink as, as federal Labor did in, um, 
you know, at the time of the GFC. And it so worked last time, didn't it? Effect. Seeing all that construction and the signs. It worked. The, yeah. And, and, I mean, That's look, right. lots of people felt that way too. I mean, very much that, look, there's stuff happening uh, in Victoria. And I guess that we've had a, quite a quiet period now that now we're out, able to get out and about. It'll be interesting to see if that plays for the, the state government again in a couple of years' time. I, I mean... Um, we're sort of out of time, Dave, but I I guess I wanted to ask whether, you know, you can't really tell whether something's going to be a legacy budget or or not when it's just being announced, but uh, the kinds of, I mean, if if we actually really do truly get airport rail, I mean, that's that's something that's been spoken about. And in nine years' time, which is, you know, a lot sooner than than has been spoken about before, I think it was 60 years into the future. Yeah, we'll be alive. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, Well, hopefully. Well, yeah, potentially, yes. Potentially. yeah, uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm less excited than everybody else in in the world about um, the airport rail, but I think it, it is certainly it's very symbolic, and it really does have that kind of sense of getting things done. Um, surely nobody in the present state government thinks they're going to be, you know, around or even accountable in, you know, in nine years' time. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a it's a you know, I'm sure they don't think about that as the sole reason why they do things. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it should be really, it's really, really interesting to see that. It'll be really interesting to see that happen. And um, just some of, the, some of those things, exactly, something that people have been talking about for forever since they put the airport in, since 1960-something, they've been talking about a, a rail link. And, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, it's probably, quite possibly, it looks more like it's going to be a thing than it ever has looked like. Yeah, it'd be like a modern international city. Uh, hey, thank you for all of your time that you've spent with us this year, um, Dave, because I don't think we'll have a chance now to speak with you again until 2021. Um, it's been real, really great. I mean, normally we'd have you in the studio and get to see you all the time, so um, I know. hopefully we can do that again next year. Here's hoping. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot for a great... A great, great fun, yeah. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Dave. Uh, Associate Professor Dave Nichols, Senior Lecturer in Urban Planning at Melbourne University and a regular voice on this here program. Triple. Ah. And we've uh, just been speaking earlier about the Victorian budget and in the lead up to that, the Treasurer, Tim Pellis, announced that electric vehicles will attract a road use tax in Victoria. Uh, The tax is uh, 2.5 cents a kilometre charge um, for electric and other zero emissions vehicles, including hydrogen vehicles, and a two cent per kilometre charge would apply to plug-in hybrid electric vehicles. Uh, To talk about these EV EV road use charges, um, we have... Giles Parkinson from Renew Economy with us. And um, Giles, Victoria's not the first to do this. Um, South Australia also imposed um, road use charge like this uh, and also New South Wales is considering it. Uh, Maybe for those that are unfamiliar about what this kind of a charge is, can you please explain to us and um, welcome. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, look, um, yeah, this is something just kind of emerged over the last couple of weeks. South Australia sort of said that they, they would do it, um, but didn't put out much details of what they're going to do. And then Victoria said, um, well, they're going to do it, and then sort of put out a whole bunch of details. And New South Wales is kind of divided over it. Um, but basically, if you look at the road user charge, so basically what they want to do is charge electric vehicles 2.5 cents 
for every kilometre that they travel. And plug-in hybrids, they want to charge two cents for every kilometre that will travel. So for a car that does about 20,000 k's a year, that's probably an extra sort of charge of about $400 um, a year on, on, the, um, on, on, the, on the cost of um, driving them. The argument is is that um, all cars should pay road user taxes and no one should be exempt and electric vehicles are getting a free ride and um, that's, about the, that's about the justification. The problem is is that none of these are really kind of valid um, for a bunch of reasons. One, Australia becomes the only country in the world to actually impose a tax on electric vehicles. Um, there is basically, apart from the ACT, there's actually no incentive provided by the government, any government, state or federal, to, to buy EVs, contrary to what's happening in the rest of the world, which is why Australia is so slow on the, on the pickup of um, electric vehicles and why we've got such a lousy choice of electric vehicles because a lot of car manufacturers can't be bothered bringing them here because they just see the lack of incentive, the lack of infrastructure, the lack of any supporting um, policy. So the fact that they're going to propose an EV tax doesn't help. It means that for fleet vehicles, fleet operators, who might have been the next people to pick up um, electric vehicles because over a three or four year period, um, they probably make sense despite their higher upfront price. Um, that's going to make it really difficult for them and probably sort of dissuade them because if you're running 100 vehicles, that's probably an extra million dollars that you're going to be paying out over those sort of, um, that sort of time, so, or half a million dollars. And, um, and that's, you know, that's no good. You know, the argument is, is that, oh, we're going to... I mean, sometime in the future, we're going to have to change the way that we raise money for, um, car, for for roads and things like that because presumably sometime in the future, petrol cars will disappear and they will all be replaced by electric vehicles. But yeah. straight that could happen over a long period of time. Um, sorry. Yeah, no, I was going to say that's interesting that you say that because what is the situation now with regards to the way that roads are funded? Because, um, I mean... Are they funded through taxes on, on fossil fuels? I, I thought they were sort of more funded through things like registration and, and um, local government and state government taxes and the like. Like, no. is there a direct link or how does that work? No, there's no direct link at all, actually. So um, even if you're driving a petrol car, you're paying 42 cents or 42.3 cents in every litre that you buy. That's going into its tax through a thing called a fuel excise levy. But the trouble is, none of that's linked to road funding. None of your registrations are linked to road funding. So basically, everyone just sees cars as a big tax grab. And so they just tax everything they possibly can. So you've got stamp duty, you've got registrations, you've got the fuel excise, you've got the GST, you've got the luxury car tax, you've got the import um, tax, you've got all these different things. It's just seen as just a revenue driver. The, the money that's raised from all the car registrations has got absolutely nothing to do with the road funding whatsoever. Um, so to sort of say that um, EVs got to pay their way is nonsense because, in fact, EVs actually probably, you probably say more tax driving an EV, buying an EV and driving an EV than you do it with a petrol car, maybe because they're more expensive. So mm. you get hit with GST and luxury car tax out the front. So it's just really this sort of inverted thing. It's um, All the studies actually show that the fuel excise um, revenue is actually not going to fall over the next 10 years because we will have such a poor uptake of EVs and people will continue buying fossil fuel cars, which is not a good thing. Um, so the, the, the revenue probably won't fall. So 
it's just, you know, they're kind of using these reasons, and, and it's just barking mad, really, because we, really we really need to reduce emissions, get cleaner cars on the road, and we've got to provide... You don't have to give out grants or handouts or something like that. You shouldn't be giving them extra taxes. How do we understand this, Giles, given that Victoria and South Australia have been sort of, you know, some of the more progressive um, states in the country to advance kind of, you know, clean energy and energy transition and that sort of thing? So what is the, I mean, is it just the rationale of trying to, you know, recoup some funds to to channel that money towards roads or, or what else might be going on here? No, look, I reckon it's just a state tax grab, actually, because basically all that fuel excise goes to um, the federal government. And so this mm. is state treasuries, uh, you know, and the economic rationalism of state treasuries are saying, hey, guys, this is a wonderful opportunity for us to actually sort of grab some money for ourselves and, um, and, and, and just basically sort of bolster our own state revenues rather than having to go to the federal parliament. So, look, I don't think it's actually tenable over a long time because you can't really have this taxation patchwork different in either state. Have you monitored that? Have you stopped people from filtering from one thing to another? It's just bizarre. So it's basically a tax grab, and then they'll try and negotiate something with the federal government maybe down the track. I don't know, but... Um, it also sounds like it, a tax grab that, that might not work, though, because if uptake doesn't really increase substantially, then there, there won't be all that much money necessarily for the, for the state to grab, will there? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, um, and one, of the, one of the impacts that this will have, apart from actually sort of dissuading car companies from bringing their EVs here and making it harder for fleets to make the transition, is that it actually favours hybrid cars. So, the biggest reduction in excise over the last few years and predicted over the next 10 years is, is just the uptake of just pure hybrids. So it's your Corollas, it's your Camrys, it's your RAV4s, it's your um, Priuses and things like that. And also some of the really expensive cars, which now have quite low um, mileages because they've got super efficient de- engines. You know, if you pay for a Mercedes or a BMW or something like that. So they're actually paying a lot less, but they're not, they're not being affected by this charge at all. So the biggest loss of revenue is in the, the switch to hybrids, but the hybrids are not being affected by this. In fact, they'll be encouraged. Now, that may sound like a good idea for some people, but if we're actually going to transition to zero emissions, then hybrids is really just a stepping stone at best. I mean, some, some people sort of call them like fax machines on wheels in the sense of, you know, it's a nice technology, it kind of reduces emissions, but it's not going to be enough to do what we need to do. And you can see that in Europe and Norway and the UK, they've all got, Bands or fossil fuel cars coming in either in 2025, that's only five years away, less than four and a bit years away, and 2030, and then including hybrids and plug-in hybrids in those bands. Yeah, so, it's fa- look, it's then- fascinating that in the week that we get the announcements here in in Australia around looking at these, um, well, you know, applying these road use charges, we hear from Boris Johnson in the UK that they're bringing forward the the end of the internal combustion engine basically of new vehicles being sold there at the same time and I, I suppose I'm starting to um, feel a little bit frustrated Giles you know going by what you just said about why are we taking this route I mean if we try and put some benefit of the doubt in into this like is there a long-term plan here at all like is it possible that bringing in a road use tax for something like an ele- for electric vehicles means that long term we can move over to a user pays type system that we have never applied to other vehicles on the road or am I giving giving too much benefit of the doubt there? Well I think you're giving too much benefit but look I mean there is a bit of a sense in the, look, we, at, some point, at some point down the track we will have to, to shift 
and you probably will come to a road user charge or something like that. I mean, the fuel excise duty is probably a road user charge because it's just basically, you know, the amount of the amount of kilometres that you drive, uh, the amount of petrol you use, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the trouble is, there's so many exemptions. You know, farmers get exemptions. Heavy, heavy vehicles who do the most damage to the roads, they pay half of what um, you and I and um, your other listeners pay. They've got this massive exemption. Um, they pay hardly anything for the um, for the road user, and, and they're estimated to cause about 22,000 times the damage of an average car. So if they really want to talk about sort of fairness and equity, that's what they should actually be looking at. And if you're going to make this transition to um, this um, this new charge because you've got this new technology coming in, then you don't fashion it in a way that actually stops the roll yeah. out of this mm. new technology and, 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 and That's the thing. It. Is it because we're, oh. we're not able to apply it? Obviously, like it's, it's hard to, to apply something like a road use tax to existing vehicles on the road because it is... A, sh- a massive shift, isn't it? Like it's a structural shift, I guess. Um, yeah, so exactly. and, easier and, to bring and, it in on luxury cars at the very beginning when they're first penetrating the market, bring it in low and and just there it is and it affects very few people, I guess. But the long-term stuff is what we kind of care, care about here, yeah. isn't it? The long-term transition. Absolutely. Look, look, it's an act of stupidity and it's an act of cowardice because they actually, you're right, they're picking on a, um, a part of the population which has not much influence at the moment because there's not that many people. There's only about 6,000 EVs out there on the roads in Australia. We've got the lowest uptake of the whole world and now we're hitting with a tax. So we've got this bizarre situation where we've stopped um, getting people to pay a price on polluting and now we're going to get pe- get people to pay a price for not polluting because they don't want to burn fossil fuels. Um, it's just bizarre. Speaking with Giles Parkinson from Renew Economy, talking all about the electric vehicle road use tax that's been proposed by the Victorian um, and South Australia governments. And where are we at with charging infrastructure, Giles? I mean, if you own an electric vehicle today, is there a real limit on sort of how far you can travel and, and where you can recharge your vehicle? Yeah, there is and there isn't. Look, I actually own an electric vehicle. I'm lucky enough to do one. Uh, I sort of save my pennies. And um, um, I live up in northern New South Wales in the Byron region. I've gone down to Canberra and back, which is about 1,000 kilometres there and 1,000 kilometres back. Um, I've done that four times since I've owned this car Mm. in the last year. And uh, there's actually no problem at all. It doesn't take me any longer to um, drive to Sydney and back than it would um, in my old um, uh, little Peugeot. So... um, so, so that's not an issue. However, I'm lucky enough to be part of the Tesla sort of supercharging network, and they've actually sort of they made the effort of putting in infrastructure, enough infrastructure to to deal with all those cars, and it's quick and it's efficient and it's, it's spaced around the place. If you're not driving a Tesla, then it gets a bit harder because. Um, the number of charging stations are growing, but they still need to grow a whole lot more um, to actually sort of make it easier. So, in theory, you can go from the top of the top of Cape York or well, Townsville or Cairns all the way through to Adelaide um, with no problems. Mm. You can take some inland routes now. People like the NRMA and the other driving organisations, the RACV, um, they're putting charging stations around the place. There's private infrastructure putting private uh, fast fast charging and what's called ultra fast charging, which in theory means you can charge a car in five minutes or something like that if you really want to. Um, but um, So, look, it's coming, but it's not fast enough. And, and what we'll need in the future is not just those sort of fast charging stations in between towns and cities and also making sure that, you know, everywhere else. We also need it sort of scattered around the city because a lot of people live in apartments, a lot of people live in places where they haven't got off-road parking. So they need to... You, it needs to be more prevalent either in the streets or in shopping centres or at cinemas 
Um, if you go to Norway, for instance, and I haven't, but I'm told by people who go there, um, and they've got this, at the moment, 70% of new car sales are pure electric cars. I mean, it's just astonishing. But everywhere, basically everywhere, is um, charging stations. You go to parking parking lot in the um, shopping centre and just about they all have um, um, some sort of charging station so you can just sort of plug in and it just becomes just a matter of routine. Mm. Um, rather than sort of queuing up and splashing petrol around the place. You know, um, I mean, I don't know that we'll have another chance to have a chat with you this year, Giles, so I'd be interested while we've got you is to get a bit of a pulse check of where you you think things are because Renew Economy, you cover a broad range of of issues and you do watch energy and climate policy. And uh, again, we we know we've got some big announcements coming out of the Victoria Labor government recently. Um, Matt Keane, counterpart in New South Wales, has made some big announcements. We heard that Tasmania is now... 100% 100% renewable energy again. I mean, they used to be before Baslink cable and, and now they are again. Where are we at, do you think, with regards to you know transitioning our energy network uh, at this time in, in 2020? Look, it's, it's really interesting. Actually, as you say, just all the states are kind of on board. Um, South Australia is also going sort of gangbusters, and apart from this sort of um, EV tax. So you've got three Liberal governments um, talking about a complete transition from coal and, and, and from gas. You've got the Labor governments also sort of pushing their 50% renewable targets. Um, there's a lot of things happening, and you can just see more corporates coming. You see more investors hungry for it. The main problem we have now is the federal government just seems to be completely disinterested. I was just listening to one of their cabinet members this morning just saying, oh, no, coal, mate, coal, coal. We don't have coal. It's going to be here for years decades, you know, um, you know, got to have coal and just going, mate, you know, unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and I mean, what, they, know, what they say matters because they're the federal government, but how much does it matter, do you think, Giles? Well, look, it matters. Look, the transition is going to happen anyway, and there will be a shift to renewables. If, if we had a federal government that accepted this, that recognised this, that, that facilitated this, that came up and had some sort of vision, that made sure that the infrastructure was there, that made sure that the rules were there and everything else, then it would be a whole lot easier and it would be a whole lot cheaper for everyone. But at the moment, you've just got a government that's just basically denying the whole transition thing. They're trying to meddle. They're trying to force feed. They're giving money to coal-fired power stations to keep them open for a bit longer. They're giving money to other people to try and think to see if they can build new coal-fired power stations. They're trying to get people to build new gas-fired power stations where it's not really necessary. They're just basically getting in the way. They're like this giant bollard right in the middle of the road, and you just want them to get out of the way. Just you know, Let the states get on with it if you don't want to be part of it, but just don't get in the way. Yeah. It'd be so much easier and so much nicer and so much cheaper for everyone if we actually had this a government that just said, okay, we're transitioning. We need to transition because of environmental purposes. We should transition because it's actually going to cost less money because everyone recognises now that renewables and storage are cheaper. And guess what? All our major trading partners who account for 75, 80% of all our trade are all going to net zero emissions by the middle of the century. So... We better get we better, we better get on to it. It, feel, and, um, it feels like 2021 might be when the the rational part of the the brain kicks in. We do have the big climate negotiations at the end of the year next year. So look, um, let's let's hope that we're having a different conversation early in 2021. Thanks so much, Giles, for um, being part of our show this morning. It's great to have you. Oh, thanks for having me on. Bye now. No worries, um, Giles Parkinson. You can find him over at Renew Economy. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot.
was 100 years ago that the Communist Party of Australia was formed, just a few years after the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia in 1917. And of course, people of the world were in a pandemic around that time as well. And um, while it's almost 30 years since the Communist Party of Australia disbanded in 1991, uh, there are still so many stories to tell about the lives of those who joined the party over its 70 years. And Dr. Bog Boughton is lead editor of a new book called Comrades Lives of Australian Communists. And uh, he's on the phone. And uh, he also wrote several of the short biographies of the party's members that make up this new book. And um, congratulations on it, Bob. Welcome to Triple R. Hi, Carly. Thank you. And so how significant was the Communist Party of Australia? How many members did it have over its history? Well, there were only 26 members at its founding meeting in Sydney in uh, October 1920. Um, but by the uh, end of the, uh, the Second World War, it had 20,000 members, which is still not a very large political party. But by then, it actually had the leadership of most of Australia's major industrial unions and was also uh, you know, playing a really huge role in all the major social movements of the time. So even though it never got beyond the 20,000 members, and in fact it shrank over the next 30 or so years, it um, had a huge influence because it, did, uh, it was a party of activists. So it wasn't a kind of electoral party. It was a party that mobilised people to take action locally and in their trade unions, their workplaces and in social movements. And so when you're cataloguing the lives of 100 members of the Communist Party of Australia, how did you decide whose stories you wanted to, to focus on, including this book? Well, that was, um, that was a pretty hard call, actually, because w when we started out, we just thought, oh, we'll tell the story of about 15 or 20 people and put them up on the Search Foundation website. That was the organisation that sponsored the project. Um, and they can be used to help, you know, contemporary social movement activists learn a little bit about this history. But when we put out a call for people to write these, we finished up with nearly 200 people volunteering to write biographies of communists they knew or knew about. And um, in the end, we had to cut it back to 100 for the book and another 50, which has gone up on the search website at www.search.org. The way we chose them in the end was we decided for a start to have a gender balance. So we said, OK, we'll, only t we'll take 50% female and 50% male because that will um, show that because otherwise the women would have probably disappeared if we just focused on the um, main leaders and that. And then we decided to make sure we covered every state and district where the party had members. So we went right round the country and spoke to people, you know, so even in areas where there were smaller, very small groups, we tried to cover those areas too. And then we just chose people from each of the decades, the main decades from 1920 to the 1980s. If we're talking sort of themes, um, I guess, as reading through the various different biographies, it seems, you know, very different, the experiences of members, depending on what sort of generation, I guess, or what decade they were active. Can you sort of talk to that a little bit? Like, I mean, I, I don't think, um, well, well, were those operating in the sort of 1920s and 30s, did they get ASIO files, for instance? So that certainly did happen later on with, with people that were active uh, after the Second World War, for instance. Well, the repression of the Communist Party was very severe even in the years between the First World War and the Second World War. Well before ASIO formed, there was a thing called the Commonwealth Investigation Branch, which worked with international security services um, to try and track communists around the world. 
And so the, some of the founding, one of the founding members, for instance, Bill Earsman, who was a Scottish um, metal worker from Melbourne, he um, was refused entry back, to Austra- back into Australia after he'd attended a meeting in Moscow of the Communist International. And that was because of the security services following him around. So, and the party was... Um, actually made illegal in the 1940s when it didn't support the start of the um, the war against Germany and then again in the 1950s they um, attempted to the Menzies government attempted to make it illegal so in different periods people did different things in the 1930s a really big thing was the struggle of the unemployed against the you know the effects of the depression uh, another issue was the people went overseas to fight with the Spanish Republicans against the fascists who took over in Spain in the 1930s. So they actually went and, and fought as soldiers and women went as nurses and medical workers and support workers to the um, Republican armies trying to resist the fascists in Spain. Um, yeah, so at different periods, people did different things. In the 40s and 50s and 60s, there was a lot of focus on building work in the trade unions. In the 1970s and 80s, it was more the anti-war movement again and the and a lot of work in the social movements like women's liberation and the gay liberation movement. So, yes, it changed. As, the, as Australia changed, so the party changed. And I guess I understand you were a member from 1975 to 1991, and, I mean, you touched on just there some of the, the priorities for, for members um, in that sort of era as well. But what did you observe, I suppose, about the status of communism throughout the Cold War and, and also, I guess, in the, the final couple of years of um, the Communist Party of Australia following the fall of the Berlin Wall. I mean, was there a shift at all in, in emphasis from sort of, you know, a particular ideological stance to um, focusing on, you know, one, one or the other issue or that sort of thing? What was it like in those sort of years that you were involved? Well, when I joined in 1975, I was at Sydney University and um, the main work we that communists were doing in those days was work, well, it had been very active in op- opposition to the Vietnam War, the conscription in the Vietnam War. Um, I was quite involved with, with trade union, you know, I got involved with trade union work, working with the Australian Social Welfare Union. Um, women's liberation was a really big deal in the 1970s, and a lot of the work that was going on then was about um, fighting for, you know, abortion rights. and But, but you know, some of these things communists had been doing for a long time before that, but it was only in the 1970s, I suppose, that it really burst through. Um, yeah, so after the fall of the Berlin Wall, that was a really big, um, you know, it created a, a sort of belief in the rest of the world that there was only one possible system, you know, the old Margaret Thatcher, there is no alternative idea. And so for a period of, you know, sort of the 1980s, 1990s, there was a quite a falling off in people's interest in socialist and communist ideas. But it's actually, um, I think it's coming back. <laughs> I was going to say Antifa and whatever. I'm more interested in it now yeah. than there was 10 years ago. Yeah, so we're talking with um, Dr. Bob Boughton. He's um, lead editor of a new book called Comrades, Lives of Australian Communists. And we're having a chat with him about really the Communist Party of Australia and, it, and its history and I suppose the rhythm of that history. And, and it does um, make me wonder, Bob, um, you know, I mean, profile of member sounds not exactly what I want to say, but you hear a lot of people saying, I used to be a member of the Communist Party um, when I was younger and then, you know, I changed or I joined the ALP or, or something like that if they were 
um, want to join political parties. Is that common or did people like you, you know, join and then stick around for decades? What, what sort of happened, um, you know, with the membership of the, the Communist Party of Australia through its history? Well, in the, um, a lot of the people who joined in the 1920s did stick it out for the whole time. You know, they, um, they never left. Um, at, in the period when the party grew fastest in the Second World War, when the Soviet Union was an ally in the war against fascism and the, you know, the Soviet Union had a lot of credibility in, a, in the rest of the world because of the incredible sacrifices it paid for defeating the Nazis, um, the people who joined in that period... Um, a lot of them didn't last very long into the Cold War because they, the life became very difficult for communists in the Cold War. Um, there was a lot of repression, a lot of really quite virulent anti-communists, and people who identified as communists would you know, easily lose their jobs, um, lose their friends in local community organisations and such things. So there was a lot of falling off in the 50s and 60s, as the, uh, largely as an effect of the Cold War, but also because there were some massive splits in the communist movement, between the, especially between the Soviets and the Chinese communists, who... Um, Led to that led to a really big split in the international communist movement, and a lot of people left the party over that. They also left over things like the invasion of Hungary in 1956, and then um, the invasion of Czechoslovakia by the Soviet Union in 1968. So there were periods when people left because of that sort of thing. Um, there were periods when people left because of just repression, and they just couldn't hack it anymore. And, um, and other people just chose that the electoral politi politi politics of the ALP was a, a better a place they felt more comfortable working. It's interesting to, to hear you say that there, you know, there might be a sense that some of the key ideals sort of underpinning the Communist Party of Australia might be particularly resonant today and, and sort of coming back um, in a big way. I mean, through the you know, global pandemic, we've seen how there's a really disproportionate impact on, on people who are in insecure work and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, over in the United States, there's been, you know, very, very significant Black Lives Matter protests um, over recent months as well. But, you know, often we hear socialism and communism used um, as sort of a pejorative term to, you know, allude to what, you know, might be fairly um, sort of social democratic principles, but, but are used to kind of cast doubt on, um, you know, the particular policy priorities of somebody like Bernie Sanders or, or AOC in the United States and that sort of thing. Do you have a sense that the, the kind of term communism might be sort of used more widely to describe a, a particular approach to politics and a particular sort of resistance, or do you feel there might be a, a different type of movement that emerges out of our current circumstances? I mean, every generation will have put its own character on a movement, but the communist movement is as old as the Communist Manifesto of 1848. It's not going to go away, I don't think. It's, um, it, it, communism as a, as a way of analysing the real problems of society, as pointing the finger firmly at capitalism, um, I think that it... It's um, it's hard to get away from that. I mean, if you can't, if you think that there are problems in society, and you start to analyse what is the underlying roots of those problems, most roots you follow will take you back to capitalism. And I think that, whatever that's the case, whatever 
capitalism does what it does in, in the world, then people who have a communist view of the world are going to find um, that their view is supported, if not the label. You know what, we haven't spent much time speaking about some of the people that are featured in this book. Um, in the time we've got left, is there someone in particular, um, Bob, that you would like to speak about um, that, that sort of stands out, I guess, as someone um, yeah, who was part of the Communist Party of Australia that you really want people to know about? Yes, there's a, there's a woman from Melbourne who I think is just extraordinary. Her name is Shirley Andrews. Um, Shirley was a scientist. She, um, she um, trained as a scientist at Melbourne Uni and she, in fact, lost her job with the CSIRO in the, because she was chosen to go to the Berlin Youth Festival, which was an international youth festival that was organised um, by communist countries and country and communist parties around the world um, but was much broader than just a communist youth festival it was for youth from other parties as well anyway Shirley went to that because she was a dancer she was a folk dancer and um, she was part of a group called the Unity Dance Company and they performed at the Berlin Youth Festival and as a result she lost her job when she came back because of the security adverse security recommendations anyway Shirley went on to um, work in, as a as a chemist in the psychiatric hospital system in Victoria, but what she did in her spare time was she was the she set up the Victorian Council for Aboriginal Rights in the early 50s, which became the most uh, the strongest organisation in Australia, advocating for Aboriginal rights at a time when it wasn't a particularly fashionable thing to do. And as a result of her work, it led to the formation of the first national Aboriginal rights organisation, the Federal Council for Aboriginal Affairs. And Shirley is just an extraordinary woman who spent her entire life keeping an organisation, organisations like that going, supporting progressive causes. And in the, when she finished doing that in the late 60s and early 70s, when the Aboriginal rights movement, um, it became much more the case that Aboriginal people took leadership in that movement, she then helped to set up the National Folk Festival in Canberra and went on, spent the rest of her life organising um, to support Australian folk music and folk traditions. So she's a pretty interesting character. <coughs> And I, I really like her story because she did such extraordinary work to support Aboriginal rights in Australia. Thank you so much for speaking with us on Triple R. And I, I think that, um, yeah, people, that there's stories like that all the way through this book. And it is fascinating, those that were members of the Communist Party of Australia, what they actually did uh, for progressive and social causes in the community as well. And um, lots of surprises in there. Thanks for, um, well, congrats on the book and thanks for being with us, uh, Bob. Oh, and can I just put in a plug? You can get the book from the New International Bookshop in Melbourne. And they would be open now, wouldn't they, too? They are open, or you can get it on their website, www.nibs.org.au, N-I-B-S. Uh, um, thanks, Bob. Um, Dr Bob Boughton, he's our lead editor of a book, Comrades, Lives of Australian Communists, and there's 100 biographies in there of all sorts of different people. And um, one of the authors, actually, one of one of the, the people in this book, is an urban planner and was um, quite you know behind much of what happened in North Melbourne and um, by uh, the biography is written by our own Dr. He's Dave just Nichols. a man of many talents, Dave Nichols, isn't he? He's everywhere. He, do, he does music books, he does urban planning, he does communism. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday.
Hope you enjoyed the show. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.